Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast for the seeking, for the lost, for the doubting, for the deconstructed. Join me, just a regular guy, as we find, keep, and grow our faith in a deconstructing world. Hello again. Welcome back. This week, we are starting a series on Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, um, as I begin to shift towards apologetics over the next year or so. Um, Before I get started, don't forget to find us on Facebook and join the discussion group. This next year of topics is going to be quite intense, and I would love to discuss it with all of you. So what is apologetics? Apologetics is defined as reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or religious doctrine. So, if you've been listening from the beginning, or even just since the relaunch, you will know my big focus is knowing what to believe and why to believe it. Apologetics is one of the ways we do this. We have faith based on evidence, based on reason. We have beliefs that are logical and make sense. We can give defense for our faith for the hope that is in us, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Because we have moved beyond just believing because we do, or just because we always have, or even beyond experiencing XYZ, we can give a reasonable defense, one that isn't based on a Bible they don't believe in, and we can be respectful of their God-given intellect. Because even experience isn't empirical, and it isn't objective. You could tell someone your experience. And while personal testimony can be powerful, not everyone is going to come to the same conclusions as you. So, to have a faith that is based on something you can point to is a huge witness, especially in this climate. Many of the most skeptical, the most resistant, are those that grew up with parents of faith. Parents of faith who said one thing but did another. Parents of faith who couldn't address the problem of evil or why bad things happen to good people. Parents who had no good defense other than, the Bible tells me so. Now, obviously sometimes it does come down to faith. It does come down to because Bible. But... Instead of that being our answer for everything, wouldn't it be nice to be able to have a reasonable defense? So, what if you aren't someone that really has gospel conversations? Maybe most of your friends are already believers. Certainly you don't need apologetics. Certainly you do. God wants us to grow in our faith, to be mature, to engage faith not only with our hearts, but our minds. After all, Christ tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Paul says in Romans, it is the transforming of our mind that conforms us to the image of God. Peter tells us in 2 Peter to grow in knowledge 
Look, once upon a time, science, philosophy, the arts, mathematics, everything was pushed forward by the religious elite. In a desire to know our creator, we fervently studied his creation, advancing astronomy, physics, medicine. Calculus was invented by a fervently religious man, Isaac Newton, who had to create it to explain the way the planets move when formulating the laws of motion. He created new math to explain new science, calculus and physics. But now, now we live in a world where people use the Bible to supposedly prove the earth is flat. We live in a world where answers in Genesis exists. We live in a world where Christians attack scientific straw men and prove they don't really understand anything at all. So what, apolo what apologetics does is it looks at moralism, it looks at creation, it looks at any number of things, and it asks why. How? And it helps us conclude there is in fact a God that can even point to what is classically called a personal God. Now, this term does not mean that God is personal to each of us, that mine is this way and yours is that way and Sally next door, um, you know, her God is different entirely. What the term personal means is that God is a person. We can see evidence of a God that exhibits personal traits and personality. This is, in fact, what we mean by a personal God. So what I want to help do away with, and this may offend some of you, and if it does, just bear in mind the truth sometimes does that, is to do away with stupid Christians and stupid Christianity. We should all desire a faith that engages both our hearts and our minds. And I feel like so often it is one or the other, but especially feelings and experiential based when it comes to the modern evangelical context. So I definitely feel called to try and inspire others to engage that intellectual peace. So now that we have touched base on what apologetics is and why it's useful, why mere Christianity? Well, it is probably the most read, most respected, most recommended apologetic of all time ever. And it goes beyond that. It starts as, as an apologetic and becomes a treatise on what Lewis believes is the baseline for Christian thought or mere Christianity. If you would like to purchase Mere Christianity and follow along, I have included my Amazon affiliate link in the description, as well as a link to a study guide if you would like to study it for yourself. I have linked Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor, as well as Calvin's Institutes as they relate to this episode. So, in the preface, we learn that Mere Christianity is in fact four books that Lewis himself revised and compiled into this work 10 years later, changing certain formats and also adding and removing certain content he understood differently than from the time he wrote the originals. I, for one, love that he tells us this. It shows us his veracity for learning, his willingness to be wrong, but also his love for the truth. He took the time and the effort to correct his own errors, to make sure that he communicated the truth at least as far as he understood it. We should all, if we are honest with ourselves at least, adopt this position. Be okay with being wrong.
and being corrected, and learning new information or new interpretations of the same information. More than just a willingness to be wrong, we need to have the humility to admit that we were wrong. And for those of us with a platform of influence, we need to be diligent to be correct and to publicly correct our mistakes when they are made. For James tells us in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Do you understand? There is, in fact, a higher standard for myself and for Lewis, who wrote this book, and others, and any elder, teacher, pastor, anyone with a teaching ministry, will be judged by what they teach. I think Lewis was aware of this and corrected his errors. His first major point is that the point of mere Christianity is not to help you decide a denomination. Even though he himself was Anglican, he did not feel led to get into the particulars. Often he states, and I do agree, that the differences between denominations are often lofty theological ideas best left to the experts, and that discussions of such deep end-of-the-pool matters do nothing to attract the outsider, but in fact deters them from belief. He doesn't say this, however, to infer that denominations are bad, or that theological discussion is bad. Quite the opposite. It is valuable as an internal debate over things like the nature of Christ, his divinity, the Trinity, charismatic works of the Spirit, the nature of baptism, what is the Lord's table and how it should be taken, present kingdom or coming kingdom? Does the new covenant excuse us from God's law, women leaders, homosexual leaders, even things like the nature of church government? These are all vital to what it is to be Christian and to what it is to do church. But these things need only be discussed with those who have already come to Christ. So this book will not be deeply theological, but in fact be a defense of what Richard Baxter called mere Christianity. Before we look at who Richard Baxter was, I do want to actually take some time to touch on denominations. Because so many people these days act like denominations are a work of the devil and that if we somehow just got rid of denominations, the church would be unified. In fact, I want to make the case that denominations are necessary for the purpose of Sunday worship and having a body of mostly like-minded believers to be part of, elders to be underneath, and teaching that hopefully challenges you but passes the test of right doctrine are very important things. And what we need to do is learn to agree to disagree. We need, we need to learn to divide what is primary or mere Christianity, which is the point of the book, and secondary doctrines. I think there are lines we can draw, maybe on things like the importance of charismatic works of the Spirit, or if communion is simply a memorial, or that when Christ said, this is my body, it's, it is somehow true in its most literal sense. If baptism is just a symbol of an inward change, or if it's somehow itself an imparter of some deeper spiritual thing, as Peter said in First Peter that baptism now saves, these are valid reasons, I think, to not do church with someone as you can't affirm the things they are affirming in their ceremonies and liturgies. 
But when it comes to loving your neighbor, when it comes to being salt and light in the world, there is no reason we can't learn to be more ecumenical. I think we need to learn to have the category of I wouldn't do church with you, but we can do life together. So, when thinking about myself in terms of where I would fit denominationally, which is something we should all ask ourselves um, for the purpose of this exercise, I am closest to what is called a particular Baptist or Reformed Baptist, which really is more a form of theology than an actual denomination. Now, there are some churches within the SBC that would hold to this confession, that being the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, but they don't have their own governing body. Uh, there are many others still who would consider themselves traditionalist. There are two main differences between your mainline or traditional Southern Baptists and more Reformed or particular Baptist. Those two differences are Calvinism and covenant theology. So this is the idea that rather than all men having the free will to repent and believe, ultimately leaving your eternal fate in your own hands, the logical conclusion of which is that it is by your own power to choose that is in fact the final cause of your salvation, which is in fact the traditional Baptist view. The Calvinist view would be that man is in fact dead in their sin, unable to believe. The Bible says a lot about the natural man not understanding that which is spiritual. And that as Ephesians 2 tells us, God has elected those who would believe from before creation. Since Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, God gives faith to his elect in order that they will believe. This view makes salvation all God. It is God who calls us and God who gives us faith. It is purely from beginning to end an act of grace. The other distinctive, as I stated, is what's called covenant theology. So, there are two main streams of theology in Protestant thought. What is called covenant theology and dispensational theology. And I mean, and there are divisions under those umbrellas, but we're just doing the 30,000 foot flyover. So, Covenant theology sees all of Scripture through the lens of God's covenant of grace, his promise to save for himself an elect remnant people. And the whole Bible is really just one unified story pointing to the cross. There is one path to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Those in the Old Testament looked forward to their Messiah and were saved putting faith in God's promise. Those post-Christ, us, we are looking, um, uh, you know, are also saved by God's promise to save his people. But we now have the anti-type. We have the fulfillment of the promise rather than just the type and shadow that existed in the sacrificial system and the law. And all who have faith are the true children of Abraham. As Paul tells us in Romans, there is no distinction between Israel or the church, but one elect people of God unified in Christ. We see the whole Bible is useful and applicable to the people of God because we see it as one covenant of, of grace in different expressions. 
Dispensational theology, on the other hand, breaks up the Bible into seven sections. In each section, God dispenses a covenant. But rather than this being a covenant he promises to keep, it is dependent on man's obedience. We fail to keep the covenant. God ends that chapter and he starts a new covenant. This has been done seven times through history. And only the current dispensation applies to us. It sees Israel and the church as distinct, many promises and covenants being for Israel and not for us. This leads to premillennial eschatology because the church must be absent for God to finish his work with Israel. So this is where the idea of a rapture and all of that stuff comes from. Covenant theologians typically hold to an amillennial view and as such are very gospel and very kingdom-minded instead of being focused on the rapture. I fit both of these categories. Someone who's more or less a Calvinist, there are distinctives I disagree with, but I can more or less hang with it, and I hold the covenant theology, that there is one covenant of grace, that those in the Old Testament were saved by faith looking forward to their coming Messiah, and that we are saved by faith looking back to the fulfillment of that promise, our Messiah, risen King, Jesus Christ. So even though it wasn't really Lewis's point, I do want to sit here for a while. We can't ignore denominationalism. As long as people have opinions, they are going to have opinions about the Bible. Until we are glorified and have perfected understanding, we are all, in fact, going to have our own interpretation. So, if we admit the inevitability of denominations, we need to ask ourselves, since they are here, and they aren't going anywhere, what are the benefits of denominations? Well, humans need to categorize stuff. It's part of the human condition, and one of the benefits of denominations is categorization. Someone can tell me they are a Christian, and it tells me nothing more about what they believe than they claim to follow some version of Jesus. It doesn't even tell me if they have a biblical view of Jesus or something else. If someone tells me they're non-denominational, I know that means they believe in the Trinity and salvation through Christ, and their default position is a roughly dispensational understanding of Scripture with a Baptist view of baptism and communion, but they don't actually care about theology and don't really think it matters that much. Sorry if you're non-denominational, but that's the truth. It just means you don't care. And if you do care and do have opinions, you actually belong to a denomination and just happen to attend a non-denominational church. If someone tells me they are Pentecostal, that tells me they believe in charismatic gifts. They believe in tongues, healing, and words of knowledge. If you are a Pentecostal who believes that tongues are the sign of the Spirit and those who have never had that experience aren't saved, take note, not all believe this. You're pretty much only going to do church with others that believe the same because everyone else isn't really Christian. So, strong convictions are another reason for denominationalism. The Lutherans, for instance, take Christ at his word when he said, This is my body. They don't believe, like Catholics, however, that it literally physically becomes flesh and blood. They believe themselves to be more reasonable and can see that it is in fact bread and wine. But they would say that by some divine mystery, it is also the body and blood. 
They believe what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that if we take it in an unworthy manner, we eat curses on ourselves and could get sick or even die. If you go to a Lutheran church and aren't Lutheran, they will not let you take communion there because they don't want you to get sick or die. So, Lutherans can't do church with other Christians because of their view of what they call the sacraments. They don't believe anyone else administers true communion. If you're Presbyterian, it means you are Reformed, but unlike the Reformed Baptist, you see baptism as the sign of the New Covenant and you baptized babies, just as the Jews circumcised. So, denominations really just help us have labels for certain kinds of doctrinal beliefs, so it is helpful to communicate ideas. Also, from the standpoint of ecclesiology, that is, the study of the church, if you don't know what that means, a denomination usually has a church hierarchy of some kind, so each local body has the support of a larger denominational body. Often, non-denominational churches are completely independent, um, so denominations are helpful from a, a support structure standpoint. So those are a few of the ways that denominations are helpful. In what ways is, is denominationalism harmful to the overall body of Christ, or what one would call the Christian religion? Really, denominations aren't the problem. People are. People are prideful, arrogant, headstrong, prone to tribalism. So what happens when you get ingrained in a particular kind of belief without the kind of comparative approach that I take is the insistence you are right and that anyone who believes differently from you isn't really a Christian. It hinders large-scale evangelism, humanitarian efforts, missions, all those sorts of things because this group won't work with that group and whatnot. Each group opens up its own shelter or its own soup kitchen or whatever because they don't want to take money from someone they disagree with. Honestly, it causes the church from the exterior to not look that much different from the world. Unbelievers don't care about our theological squibbles. Why does the nature of God matter to someone who isn't even sure if there is one? We seem like we argue over really dumb stuff. It becomes an obstacle for the new believer because, well, what are they supposed to believe? Do you, like, just choose a denomination and go with it? Or how does any of this work? It raises the difficulty curve for entry, that's for sure. And for the most part, we know this. Which leads me to the next problem with denominationalism, the overreaction to denominationalism, which is non-denominationalism. Because denominations are divisive, and it is often theological and doctrinal issues that cause division, the idea is to just not get theological, to keep it simple, to love God and love your neighbor, and to not have an opinion about anything else. This leads to my favorite thing, not Christians that don't know what they believe or why. Christians that can't defend or even share the gospel in the postmodern, post-Christian world because they have no basis for their claims. This idea of ending division by just avoiding divisive topics isn't real unity. It aims to solve the problem by not addressing the problem. So what do we do then? Is it even possible for us to be united in Christ and work together as the family of God? This leads perfectly into Richard Baxter, of whom Lewis borrowed the term mere Christianity. So, who was Richard Baxter? 
Richard Baxter was a puritanical Anglican, part of what was known as the Nonconformists, and he is responsible for helping England find religious unity. As the Reformation was getting into full swing, the Anglican Church, or the Church of England, was formed by Henry VIII and marked in earnest the English Reformation. Over the next 100 years or so, there were those within the Church of England that still thought it too Catholic and believed that each church should be self-governed. They came to be known as the Congregationalists. The Puritans were part of this movement. In Scotland, John Knox had started the Scotch Presbyterian movement after bringing back to Scotland a copy of Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion and Ecclesiastical Ordinances, which detailed the idea of the church being led by a plurality of elders instead of a single priest or bishop. Because men are depraved, because no man is good, no single man should be trusted, and the elders would hold each other accountable. That church would be part of a larger district that was comprised of elders representing each church, and so on, until you get to national and worldwide levels, where one elder from every church would be present in a great assembly. Despite what people think about Calvinism as a whole, this is probably Calvin's biggest contribution to the church, Presbyterian ecclesiology. By the 17th century, the Anabaptists had begun to gain influence in England, and there began to be an influx of Baptist ideologies, as I said before, named for their doctrine of baptizing those who profess belief, or credo-baptism, instead of baptizing infants into God's covenant, which is paedo-baptism. A memorial view of communion, literally just an empty symbol that we do in remembrance, versus any kind of real presence or means of grace. Politically, the Anabaptists were the most dangerous as they brought the idea of a separation of church and state, which the Puritans brought with them to the New World. England was fracturing, and it was doing so along the lines of religious affiliation. Baxter, an Anglican who favored the Puritans, sought to bring unity within the Church of England. Though a man, though a man of great conviction, having written over 200 works, long controversial treatises on theology and doctrine, he saw all believers as a large family under one loving father. Despite the aforementioned convictions, he had no interest in disputes between Anglicans, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and those that would become the Reformed Baptists. Rather, with his well-known saying, in necessary things unity, in doubtful things liberty, in all things charity, he was able to find that common ground and get parishes and pastors to work together for common goals. This common ground, the core beliefs all Christians share, are what Baxter and later Lewis, entitling his book, called Mere Christianity. But if he hadn't known firstly for himself what he believed and why, and in the beliefs of those around him, he never could have found that common ground. I propose the answer to unity isn't ignoring theology and doctrine. It is in fact embracing it, learning for yourself what you believe and why, and then listening to the Lutherans, listening to Presbyterians, Pentecostals, hell, maybe even some Catholics, and truly understanding their convictions instead of labeling someone instead of labeling something a stupid argument because you don't understand it. You should maybe learn to argue the other side. Learn why it matters. 
Paul understood the conviction of those who would not eat meat sacrificed to idols, even though he understood it was only meat with no power. When we listen to understand, instead of listening to respond, something I'm terrible at, by the way, we will learn to respect each other's differences and work together in ways that honor each other's convictions. Then we can have true unity, a unity that embraces our diversity. So as we explore this book, we will be exploring what Lewis considered mere Christianity. Lewis starts by making the case that a Christian is anyone who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. That was considered a bold claim then, in the 50s, and it is an even more bold claim now in these days of subjective truth. How dare you judge me? You say you're a Christian and you can't even follow Jesus' words to not judge. They say as they judge you, completely unaware of their own hypocrisy. But if words do in fact mean things, and I think they do, we cannot allow the word Christian to become a vague subjective term. When that happens as it has today, then anyone who says they are a Christian is, regardless of lifestyle, beliefs, or lack thereof. After all, doesn't being born in America, the Christian nation, make you Christian? Or maybe believing God exists and going to church now and then. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe you even go to church like once a month and even read one of those daily bread things. You have to be a Christian, right? No? Oh, <laughs> I've got it. I know what I forgot. You have to be Republican. Surely that's it. Really, the idea is to take away the supernatural, take away the idea of sin and hell, and turn Jesus into a guru. The Old Testament is outdated. The New Testament is full of ideas. Paul and Peter and those... Uh, you know, Paul and Peter and all those guys aren't binding. Those are just their opinions, written in a certain time and a certain place, and they don't really matter to us modern Western peoples. We really just need to read the Gospels, and you know, not even the whole thing, just the words of Jesus. And even then, none of the stuff about hell, just the stuff about loving your enemy and stuff. And then, now that we have a Bible we're okay with, and a Jesus that we like, one that's not offensive, we can believe in and follow Jesus as the ultimate moral example. And if we all just live by Jesus' teaching, pain and suffering, which is what hell really is, will go away and we can make earth heaven. That's all it really means. Anything besides that is just old-fashioned, and we can't be expected to really believe all that stuff. Look, we believe in Jesus. We're Christians, too. <laughs> when we don't define what Christianity is, the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe in a Jesus that isn't God but the Archangel Michael, and Mormons who believe in a Jesus that is the brother of Satan are Christians too. Because obviously, anyone who believes in Jesus is a Christian. Oh yeah, and it's a relationship, not a religion, so I don't need your standards and stuff. I have a relationship with my Jesus, and you just don't understand. How did we get here? Postmodernism, or really 
post-truthism, which is what it has become at this point, is a philosophy based on critical theory that denies epistemic objectivism. It denies certainty and stability of meaning in order to attack what it sees as the meta-narrative and ideals of modernism, which it, which it ultimately sees as an extension of the ideals of the Enlightenment. What does all that mean? Well, epistemology is literally the study of knowledge. It is about how we know things, focusing on separating that which is truly fact and that which is just opinion. By asking, what is knowledge? How do we acquire it? And by what means can we know? And this is going to get confusing. But by what means can we know that we know things? Its ultimate goal is to establish objective truth. But postmodernists reject epistemic objectivism. We can, in fact, never be certain, and knowledge can and does daily change. Therefore, facts and even what we know about reality changes daily. And the truth of the matter is we have no meaningful way to separate that which is truly real from our perceptions of reality. So, really, we all perceive truth differently. And even things like words can't be proven to have an objective meaning. I can therefore label anything I would like Christianity. So how do we refute this? This idea that we can't really know anything for sure. And it doesn't matter what's real because perception is reality. Well, first of all, objective meanings are just useful. How can we even communicate to one another if I use a word one way and you're using it another way? It's not useful, helpful, or practical. So we must define Christianity by an, an adherence to a set of objective beliefs. If we try to say it is he who loves his neighbor or he who lives like Jesus, we're instantly into subjective opinions. What I consider love for neighbor and what amount is the threshold for Christianity may in fact be different than your standard. While we would both agree that none of us can perfectly look like Jesus, our standard for how much we must look like Jesus to be a Christian could be different. We cannot make what it is to be Christian anything that is meritorious. While it is true that Christ did say, those who love me obey my commands, how much obedience? At what point can we be sure someone is a Christian? Is it as simple as anyone who claims belief in Jesus? Well, no, because as I stated earlier, there are many versions of Jesus out there these days. But we also can't make it qualitative because we, we will disagree on which qualities and how much. We may say someone who fails to obey, someone who fails to look like Christ is in fact a bad Christian, but we must judge but we must judge if they are one based on an objective set of defined beliefs. So what then? Over the next year, as we look at what Lewis describes as mere Christianity, we will discover what beliefs and why Lewis considered them to be required Christian belief, which is really what the idea of mere Christianity is about, discovering those core beliefs all Christians share. If you don't believe these things, then by definition, you in fact are not a Christian. If in fact words do have meaning... 
If you believe these but are an entirely uncharitable person, it is not my place to say you are not Christian, but the Bible would give me plenty of authority to insist you are a bad one. I hope this podcast has been enlightening, and I hope it has sucked you in enough to follow along with us for the next year or so. If you aren't a reader, so the affiliate product option isn't for you, but you would still like to support the show and help keep the website up and feed going, I have a PayPal link as well as an option to support us monthly through Buy Me A Coffee linked below. If you want to do a podcast of your own and don't know where to start, use Buzzsprout. They have forums and how-to videos and have been a fantastic partner for me. As I upload to Buzzsprout and they send it to Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, anywhere people get podcasts, and I don't have to worry about it because they do the work for me. You get a free website through them or the ability to link to your own if you have one. When you sign up for any of the paid options through my link, which is recommended, because not only do you get more upload time, but you also get to keep your back catalog instead of just 90 days. We both get an Amazon gift card. But the best way to support the show and ultimately encourage others is, of course, to share the show. Share it on Twitter, on Facebook, on Insta, wherever it is that you connect with others. You can find Reconstructed Faith online at ReconstructedFaithPodcast.com, as well as our Facebook and YouTube channels. Don't forget to subscribe and follow. Until next time, see ya.